So a huge hello to Elodie. Hello. Oh, hi, Danny. It's so nice to be here with you. It's so nice to do this in person. I think you're my first in-person author recording. Oh, well, that's great. And, you know, what people listening can't see is you bought the most epic chocolate cakes. So I, I always, I provide. Yeah. <laughs> people should do that just for the, the free chocolate Definitely. cake. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to try one as well. I can't wait for that. But you're here in Exeter in the southwest to come and do a signing this evening and we'll chat about your new book the sequel to The Wolf Den. Um, I'm going to start off by saying I loved The Wolf Den. Uh, and you. I had very high hopes for the, the House of the Golden Door. Um, how did it feel to firstly have a book that was so well received as The Wolf Den was and to be able to bring out the second book and have people love love your characters? Do you know, sometimes it doesn't feel real. It's a really wonderful um, experience. I just feel incredibly lucky um, I'm good friends with Jennifer Saint who wrote Ariadne and Electra and the pair of us have done a few events together and we were published at the same time we read each other's books before publication we actually have the same um, agent and you know I think for both of us when we do events together we can't quite believe it um, <laughs> that people love our books and that this has happened um, you know with the Wolf Den I, I still remember the phone call that it was going to be Waterstones Book of the Month. I just could not believe it. Um, I'm really grateful to all the um, indie bookshops and Waterstones uh, in particular, you know, for the support behind the book. Um, because I think, you know, however good your book is, it's it's the support of other people that makes or breaks it, I think. so. There's been a real renaissance, I feel like, in Greek mythology and Roman mythology, and uh, there seems to have been a real surge of interest. What is it, do you think, about stories from that time that appeal to readers so much? So I think with Greek mythology in particular, you know, these are stories that we heard as children. Um, For me, you know, it was Tony Robinson's Odysseus, the greatest hero of them all on the TV, like stomping around the West Country in Cornwall, I think, (laughs) pretending it was Troy. Um, You know, and like Usborne Book of Greek Myths. Um, So you, and then you read them in sort of more sophisticated um, versions or the original, you know, if you're reading Homer, etc. later. But the stories themselves, they are very familiar. And yet at the same time, they haven't been told from the women's perspective. And it just utterly transforms the story when you do that. Um, And there are also many gaps in the stories, which gives people license to to fill stuff in. Um, And so I think it's that sort of lure of both something that's familiar, so it's quite comforting, but also quite new. And also, you know, I think people are increasingly demanding it, wanting to see themselves in stories. And with the Roman world, um, because obviously I don't write uh, Greek mythology, I think, you know, the same, like, who has not had a Roman's day at primary school? Yeah, I remember Roman day. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, dressing up in your toga and, you know, going to your local museum to see, like, the Roman staff or, you know, it's it's a kind of cliched, familiar aspect of, of, of the past, emperors, togas, senators... And I wanted to look at the lives of ordinary people um, yeah. and women. So again, you know, a different slant on something that's, that's familiar. So that I wanted it to feel both, you know, something familiar, i.e., you know, the Roman world, which people are interested in, but different. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, the Romans had such an impact on us as a country. Yeah. I grew up in Dorchester, which was Donovaria, and there's a lot of Roman, you know, there's yeah. Roman walls and archaeology. And perhaps that's why people f- still feel that connection. Yes, I think definitely. To the Romans. You know, and, you know, obviously in Italy, there's like huge uh, Pompeii, where my 
books are set but you know in Rome you know it is it is a, a it's probably the most visible form um, of antiquity for Europeans obviously yeah. um, you know tell me I'm so sorry <laughs> don't worry about it I don't think the microphone would have picked that up I didn't notice so, I was like, oh my word, I well, haven't had lunch. That chocolate I know, cake. the chocolate is. cake is sat there, and I'm like, my stomach's like, whoa, sorry, do carry on. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, you know, it, it's, um, it, it is a sort of familiar part of, of, yeah. of antiquity in terms of what you can physically see or visit. Yeah, definitely. I think that for me as well, Pompeii is a story that you hear of only mixed with tragedy. Yes. And although you see the the people, the bodies, you know, the ash forms of these people, I don't think I've ever stopped to think about the fact that they were people. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because that is, well, not funny, obviously, about the bodies, but it's so strange that, you know, that is what Pompeii's famous for. It's yeah. death, basically. But for me, that was never, ever what interested me. The thing that I find fascinating about Pompeii is, you know, the abundance of evidence of the life um, in, in, in the city. You know, it's unique um, as a historical site, really, for what has been preserved. Yeah. In particular, you know, the only um, pres- preserved purpose-built brothel of the ancient world, the Lupana um, yeah. Wolf Den, where my book is set. You know, so these are you know the lives of the underclass the lives of ordinary people preserved in the most extraordinary way um you know the frescoes the mosaics just these extraordinarily beautiful objects if you go to the museum in naples they look so new they look so fresh you know they're so beautifully preserved Mm. um so yeah i mean I, i find pompeii absolutely fascinating for that and i know this sounds a bit nuts but when i wrote the wolf den in particular not so much the house with the golden door I genuinely forgot there was going to be an eruption when I was writing it. I was writing it about that place, you know, that I yeah. visited, that, you know, about the life. And it's uh, something that was quite noticeable to me as well, you know, when I took masses and masses and masses of photos when I went on my research trip. And I didn't photograph a single one of the bodies, which I, I regret now because it would be useful for blogging and, yes, you yeah. know, <laughs> for, for book three. But, you know, that just wasn't what drew me at all. Um, if anything, you know, I, I do find the sort of cast a bit off-putting um, because it's it's yeah it's a record of a tragedy. Whereas yeah. what I like thinking about is is the record of people's lives. It's it's fascinating, I think, as you say, you know, to remember it's not just a place of death. No, it was, it was a city for like you know hundreds of years. Yeah. It's just become synonymous with that yeah. event, mm-hmm. you know, which you can't imagine at one one town just becoming known for, like you say, it's it's death. That's what yeah. it's known for. Mm-hmm. Both of your books tackle a circumstance, as you say, you focus on the wolf den. Mm-hmm. It's obviously tackled some very harrowing themes. Mm-hmm. The women who were in those places were not there by choice. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, the, the way their lives had panned out. And it was unfortunately an inevitable fact for a lot of women that they would end up in those circumstances. Were you aware when you were writing it, you know, the need to be sensitive? Yeah, I mean, yeah. 100%, 100%. You know, before I um, wrote a word, really, I, I, it was very clear in my mind that, you know, I wanted to write about the Lupana, um, which for anyone listening who doesn't know, Lupana means brothel, but it also means wolf den in Latin, um, hence the title of the book. But in writing about um, the brothel, I did not want to do a kind of cliched brothel book. I wanted to upend people's expectations of what a book about the brothel in Pompeii would be about because, you know, we know the women were um, enslaved sex workers and so, you know, 
that's not the, the part of their lives that I wanted to dwell on. I wanted to think about their humanity, their dignity, their loves, their relationships with one another, their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations, all the things that make that made them human. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of the enslavement and the type of work they were forced to do was just one aspect of, of their lives and not defining who, who they were as, as people. Um, you know, and so because the book was very much about wanting to focus on their humanity and them as individuals, um, you know, it would just have been hugely inappropriate to have explicit scenes. Added to which, I don't like to read horrible things happening to women. I certainly wouldn't want to write it. Not just women, you know, anyone. I I don't, you know, I don't want graphic physical descriptions of non-consensual sex. I absolutely know and I felt you know that would also defeat the purpose of writing the book yeah so but at the same time you know this aspect of life for people in the ancient world was incredibly common um so not just if you worked in a brothel but you know all enslaved people had no bodily autonomy at all they had no sexual agency they were when they were young you know regularly used both men and women by the people who owned them um which is which is horrifying um and you know, I I think when we have our kind of sanitised uh, look at the Roman world, oh yeah, there were slaves, without actually thinking about what yeah. that meant for those people. Yeah. Um, or that thinking because there was no um, emancipation mo- movement in the Roman world that people were content with their lot, whereas all the evidence is that enslaved people were not content with their lot. They did not enjoy being enslaved. And, you yes. know, the kind of overarching goal of an enslaved person was to to get their freedom i think you handled it incredibly well i think as you say it's it's unavoidable so you know you can't sugarcoat and gloss over what happened to them because that's to ignore as you say that's to ignore what what happened and to sanitize it um but i think you wrote it really well in that you get you can feel the oppression you can feel yeah it's about the emotions and the psychological impact i didn't want to write about the physical aspect of it Oh, completely. And I think, obviously, the House of the Golden Door is a very different beast yes. to the Wolf Den. Mm-hmm. It's a very different story. It's still a story about being oppressed and being kept and yeah. your life not being your own, but in a very different way. What was the inspiration behind where Amara finds herself? So it's interesting. So I did plot out the whole trilogy uh, in advance, but after I finished the Wolf Den, I changed the trajectory in book two quite a lot. Um, because it felt unrealistic to me the way that I'd originally taken it Mm -hmm. because I think you know the Amara of book one she's in survival mode yes you know she all her efforts are to get her freedom like nothing else not love not relationships basically nothing she has to she's very young she's she's very young yeah she has to give up every other aspect of herself in a sense in order to get her freedom because that's what it costs um, and obviously when she has her freedom in the house with the golden door, she's also without any spoilers, you know, she's lost someone very close to her. So she's mm-hmm. bereaved and she, you know, when we're not in survival mode anymore, that's really when we have to reckon with the aftermath of yeah. trauma and of grief and of all these things. And so, um, you know, I wanted to have a more vulnerable side to Amara and also to show her making decisions which weren't driven purely by survival. Yeah. It's it's what she wants to do in order to live rather than just to survive, the choices she makes to live. Yeah. Um, in which case love and relationships are, you know, more important 
yes, she's able to open herself up to those things yeah. that just were not possible beforehand. Yeah. I think it's interesting as well from the outside, there would be people who would feel that she had become lucky as a character, that she'd mm-hmm. fallen on her feet. But it's very interesting to see the different the different forms that survival can take you know her life is still not her own really she's still not free as it were to make her own choices to live her you know the freedoms she gets are always at a cost they're always at risk i'm very intrigued to see what's going to happen in book three (laughs) where where it's going to take her you're obviously working on it at the moment do you know where where it's going to end up yes i mean so book three is is very precisely mapped out in terms of what, what happens um, you're tired as well because we know what happened to Pompeii we, we know, know what, what happened, happened to Pompeii what we don't know however or what's not talked about in anything like as much detail if at all is you know the refugee crisis after the eruption never, the, re- the yeah. rebuilding of the area what happened to that you know that that part of the world so um, that's something that I think is very interesting I didn't realise either how vital Pompeii was in terms of trade and, and other forms as well I kind of assumed it was just this little town that was all, everyone yeah, was wiped I mean, there out was, there, was, there was somewhere called Putely which was just you know not mm. far away which was was much bigger in terms of, of trade but yeah. you know it was still a major a major yeah. Roman town to be destroyed um, yeah. you know it had a, and then there was Neapolis which is Naples which you know yeah. took in a lot of the survivors and i wasn't aware there were any survivors i think in my head i imagine that that was the end you know so there were earthquakes in the run-up to the eruption which you know some people took that as the warning to leave and then you know i think there is still some doubt about how many people survived once the eruption started but you know, it does seem like quite a lot of people escaped. Wow. I guess it's really hard to be able to, to work out those figures anyway. I'm yeah. sure they weren't kept in, in the way they no. would be now. And going back to what you said about you kind of forgetting that there's there's going to be an eruption, I feel very much the same when I'm reading both books. Yes. I kind of forget that that's ultimately what happened. And, and that's really good, and that was kind of the aim, because, you know, I didn't want lots of ominous, clunking metaphors of doom or sort of, you know, ominous... The volcano constantly the, in the to, background. Yeah, yeah. To, to the because, because they didn't even know it was a volcano. They had no idea they were living wow. underneath a yeah. volcano. It's just a mountain. So, you know, occasionally I'll reference, you know, the, the shape, the, the mountain. But, but they, yeah, they weren't aware. No, it's just a landmark like the sea. It's when I think it's like when people say, you know, they watch Titanic and you know what the end is going to mm. be, but you're so lost in those characters and lost in that story. Yeah. You kind of forget that there's only one way it's going to end. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm interested to see what happens to our characters. You've also written one of the most complex and slightly horrifying characters <laughs> in Felix. Yeah, it, really difficult. I was talking to a friend about him, and I said to her, you know, I really hated him, but it's really hard as you're reading about him. I'm very conflicted by him because he's yeah. very much a product of his of his upbringing. Yes, and and that um, you know that that was kind of my aim um, in writing him that people would feel very conflicted you know I deliberately made him very physically attractive so you know when you visualize Felix he is meant to be gorgeous like absolutely stunning um, which complicates things he's charismatic he's capable of being funny he's smart he's also you know absolutely ruthless cruel sadistic you know lacking in compassion Um, so you know, and you do you do meet people like that, and I did want to think about the dynamics of abusive relationships. Obviously, yep. it's very extreme, both because he's a pimp and because this is a, you know a slave owning society. Um, 
But, you know, you hear much more about Felix's backstory in the house with the golden door and his childhood and, you know, how he became who he is. So it's it's not that I want to excuse his behaviour in any way whatsoever. And I wanted to be quite sort of firm about that. Yeah. He's not excusable. He's not kind of like the villain who turns into the romantic hero um, in any shape, way or form. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I wanted people to be able to understand him yeah. Um, and that there is an explanation for his terrible behaviour. It doesn't come out of nowhere. And also, you know, that him and Amara have quite a few similarities. Yeah. Um, they're both survivors. They're both pretty ruthless. They're both quite Machiavellian um, when they mm-hmm. have to be. Um, so, you know, and Amara has to become more like Felix in The Wolf Den yeah. in order to um, escape him. Um, so yeah, I wanted it to be, be complex because something that I was trying to convey very much, um, in this trilogy is that we're only as good as the choices before us. You know, you can only be as good as the choices you're faced with. It's almost worse in some ways because with Felix, you can see glimmers of what he could have been. Yes. And you know, Amara had a very loving childhood where Mm -hmm. she was taught about right and wrong, where she was encouraged to be kind, where she was shown kindness Felix has never had this. All yeah. he's known is abuse. So, of course, for him to relate to people in non-abusive ways is, yeah. you know, would be quite a big ask. It's not impossible. Plenty of people from all eras manage it, you know, have horrifying circumstances and grow up to be the most wonderful, compassionate people. Yeah. So I certainly don't want to say, oh, you know, he had a terrible time, therefore it was inevitable he'd be terrible. No. But it's, you know, it's not like he had a wonderful he's made a choice i think there's there's two paths almost isn't there in that scenario and and i think he's chosen to take a path where he can use that behavior to excuse what he does in some ways excuse it and also you know he's modeling his behavior on Mm. the people who are abusive to him yeah as opposed you know as a way of not feeling like a victim he's become the abuser and i think it's scary that i think he and amara kind of almost a mirror of one another. He's everything she doesn't want to become, but he sees himself in her. Yeah, and she does see herself in him as well. Yeah. And and there is this attraction between them, um, as well as hatred. I think they're very close, (laughs) close emotions sometimes. And another character who I think everybody loves is Britannica. Oh, she's, yeah, she ended up being my favourite. I love Britannica. She's amazing. And obviously you've announced on Instagram that you are working on a, on a novel that's going to be, you know, set in that time. Yes. So after the Wolf Den trilogy, um, I'll be publishing, um, with Head and Seuss, Boudicca's Daughter. So it's sort of about a decade before we meet Britannica for the first time. So she would just have been quite a, a small child during the um, British you yeah. know, Queen's Rebellion. But it's not it's not a book about Boudicca as such, although she is a central character in it. It's, it's about her daughters. Who um, obviously were a big part yes, of what big happened. Of big catalyst. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always... If I was any good at writing historical fiction, it's a story I would have loved to have explored. I'm very, very excited Thank that you're you. going to be writing yeah, it. I'm very excited as well. Yeah. It's such a... It is a dark story. Um, dark. For anyone who's not familiar with, with the story. Um, and, you know, it was... You see these amazing statues of Boudicca, you know, in her chariot with all her, you know, her with spears her and all their daughters... Yeah. And actually, the power they had was fairly limited. Mm. I'm very intrigued to see how you explore it, the world that they lived in. I think it's fascinating. Because you hear about the Romans. Yeah. 
in Britain, but actually less about the Britons who already yes. lived here. They were kind of wiped out of conversation in a lot of ways. So I'm really excited. Thank you. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm looking forward to tackling it as well. I've got to get book three. Now, so. <laughs> you do. Will Britannica maybe appear? You know, it's possible she might have a cameo. Um, very if, cool. If I, if I, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'm hoping. But because obviously she would have been very Keep a little girl. Little. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it wouldn't she's not going to be the person that we see in no of course and you also announced that there's another story as well that you're going to be working on can you tell us a little bit about that one yeah so Fulvia um, who was Mark Antony's um, wife uh, it's going to be her story Um, but very much not as the wife she was a she was a power player in her own right she's somebody Mm -hmm. that I um, sort of learned more about through my friends um, Jen and Jenny at the um, Ancient History Fangirl podcast. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so she was a massive power player, the first woman to get her face on Roman coinage. Uh, she was really, you know, a contender for leader of Rome. Wow. Um, so, yeah. The only thing I think I've, I've ever read her <coughs> in is a Michelle Moran book she featured as a, a kind of a secondary character in not portrayed fantastically and I think she very much lived in her husband's shadow and his you know his future wife's shadow well, I, I don't know that she did actually ah. uh, I, I don't I mean she does historically now yeah but at the that's time, how I've only ever read her yeah. as kind of this kind of like oh and then there was his no wife <clears throat> so um yeah she I mean she raised armies against Augustus wow um which she led so um well, he wasn't Augustus then, he was Octavian. But, yes. But, um, yeah, she she was really like the fourth member of the second triumvirate. So. Wow. I'm Well, I can't wait to read all about her. Those are two stories that just sound so cool. Um, sign me up. Whenever they come out, I want to read it immediately. So I'm thinking now with your novel evening that there might be some historical characters in there. Do you know what? I'm just going to go rogue with this. So I really love the first three books of um, A Court of Thorns and Roses. So if I was going to go hang out in a sec- uh, fictional setting, it would be um, Valaris and uh, the Night Court. <laughs> I, um, th- this is basically what mine would be. I'd have the three bat boys yeah. and just me for dinner. Well, you know, I think, I think, you know, they're all taken really. So I'm just hoping that Recent has a twin. Um, that would be cool. Oh. He definitely, you know, I could be sat next to Rhysand's twin. Um, I'm asked... Cassian. That's who I'm here for. <laughs> All of it's the man bun and the humour. I think <laughs> I definitely. I I'm a little surprised you've chosen that, but I'm not mad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad about it. I'm happy with that. And her, I mean, her descriptive writing in the settings she designs are yeah. unreal. Yeah, no, I, I do love that. The, the, the first three books, I love. Um, from that trilogy. So. Okay, so we're going to go there. I'm guessing it'll be Starfall. We'll, we'll turn up there. And if you're going to go... Oh, yeah, you might as well go, go to Starfall. Yeah, you got to do yeah. it properly. Okay. Yeah. So we're there. Reese's twin is... <laughs> <laughs> who we've now invented and are going to add in to proceedings yeah. is there. Who's going to show up? Who's going to turn up for this ball at Valaris? Um, well, um, I think, you know, being very dreary, um, all my friends, really... Um, but in particular, I think uh, Jenny Saint would enjoy going along, um, and uh, Juliet Mushens, our agent. Um, yeah. I follow her Instagram. <laughs> We'd have a laugh, and she just shares so many memes that oh, she's very, very funny. Yeah, I need Juliet to come because you know she'd meme it to death afterwards. 
and uh, you know, I'd need Jenny to come because I'd love to read her account of uh, of the evening. Oh, so, do, would you want people to read the account? All, and then all the, <laughs> this is just stuff. All the dance and the dinner, you know, let's not get carried yeah. away. Um, yeah, and then you know, just the characters from that world as well, obviously. Yeah, that would so, be perfect. Because yeah, they wouldn't want to hang out with more and. Yeah, Cassian. Yeah, Lisanne's twin. He's not attached to Feyre. Oh, they're all attached. It's so depressing. That's why I've added the twin. You know, I can have Cassian's long lost brother as well for you if you like. I would very much like that. I'd appreciate that greatly. Would you have any of your characters there? I mean, can you imagine Felix and Valoris? I mean, maybe not. Oh, Um, he would. He would go down. If I was going to hang out with my characters, then you know, it would be probably Pliny. Um, well, he's not my character. He's a real historical figure. Um, no, yeah, I would be interested to meet Pliny. Um, the Pliny, the real Pliny, the elder of the natural history, just sounds so nerdtastically bonkers. Um, he would be fascinating to talk to. Um, he really did interview um, courtesans as part of his research. Wow, really? Like, oh, yeah. I mean, there's nothing like he's got views on bikini waxes and he writes about contraception and yeah no he was just interested in people so he would be I just wasn't even aware that they had bikini waxes well it wasn't really wax but you know kind of removal hair removal wow they were really ahead of their time weren't they I feel like we took a real step back after the Greeks and the Romans well actually going back to your very first question about why are we fascinated I do think that the Roman world is much more modern and more familiar um, in so many ways, because of their sort of um, technological advances, well, technological isn't quite the right word, but no. <laughs> Such as bikini wax. Material, you know, <laughs> kind of life, life advance, they're, yeah, they're ancient technology. Um, but at the same time, deeply alien in so many yeah. of their customs and beliefs. But you know, it is, the Roman world and reading Roman writers, you know, feels a lot more, uh, relatable, I think, than I don't know, thirteenth century. Oh God, stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I yeah, it's it's very true. I think he would be fascinating to talk to. The things he could tell you in the stories mm. would be. And I can more see Felix like the Court of Nightmares. He yeah, would do Felix very would, well there. Felix would love the Court of Nightmares, wouldn't he? Yeah, He'd take he it over within happy. a few a few hours. I feel like <laughs> he would. I don't think they'd see him coming. Really. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Amara and Feyre would get on splendidly. Oh, I think they would. <laughs> I think they would. You're probably right there, you know. It's so interesting, isn't it? And I love thinking about what characters would be like together and how they would... you know would... what? I have literally never done this, particularly not for my own characters, because, you, you know, you're very conscious that you invented them and they're not real people. Yeah, but, um, yeah in a way that you're not with other people's fictional characters. Yeah, um, yeah I've, I've never never really done that so yeah it's quite funny i do think valaris is is a perfect setting i think Pliny would have a wonderful time he'd be fascinated by the architecture and the everything for sure yeah Yeah. i would be as well this i have to say this is the most i was going to use a swear word but you you can swear (laughs) with the most batshit fictional dinner party you've had surely Um, (laughs) Pliny the Elder and Valaris uh, we've had some very very odd ones I did a recording yesterday so it was at the M&M store um, and I'm pretty sure Jude from Jude the Obscure was there, oh, okay. just at the M&M store. We've had oh, the end okay, of the no, world. That is quite strange. That is yeah, quite strange. the girls who wrote Twin Crowns, um, Cat Doyle and Catherine Weber, 
basically just did a bit of a purfest. It was like all the hot men from every fantasy going <laughs> at the castle of Narnia kind of thing. And I was like, this would be me. It wouldn't oh, well, be very... Polaris sounds pretty, you know, straight-laced in comparison. We're just going to have some dancing and some food and chatting to the bad boys. Yeah, they'd have some stories. Is there anybody, apart from Felix, you don't want to show up? Who's definitely not invited and can't well, my books. Well, any, any characters you um, loathe. <clears throat> oh, um, oh, I can't really. I can't really think because <laughs> I think the problem is, you know, when you when you're really into a book, even the ones that you hate, you you love the characters. So I don't, unless I've hated a book, um, then I can't really think of any. Oh, any of your characters? Um, well, I really no no thanks to Rufus, really. Oh, him. he gives me the heebs, and I don't yeah. know why. There's something a bit skeezy about him. I think he's a narcissist, basically. I think if you're buying somebody's love and you are convincing yourselves that that love is, is at all real, you must be a bit of a narcissist. To... Yeah, I mean, I'm slightly spoiled it. We don't really see that in, in, in The Wolf Den. You know, he's not irredeemable, but he's, he's just deeply, deeply self-centred. Yeah, but so. I think that was probably something that many of the rich back yeah. then suffered with. Yeah, <laughs> so, for sure. I think the levels of power they probably had back then, you were going to be a little bit narcissistic, weren't yeah, you? Yeah. To be able to survive that time with money. I'd like to have given it a go, to be honest. <laughs> I'd still like to try. I'd like to try being a rich narcissist for a little bit. I'd be happy with that. <laughs> I'd give it a go. But I don't think it's the weirdest evening I've had. It sounds like it would be fun. I really want to meet Jennifer Sane because she sounds like she's an awful lot of fun. Oh, she's great. Sure. Have a great time. Oh, I, I'm sure. I'm sure I will. And I need to ask you before I let you go: Are you reading anything at the moment? I know you're writing. I am. I am lucky enough to have a proof of Natalie Haynes's Stone Blind about oh. Medusa, and it is sensational. I am loving it. I also was really lucky to get a proof, and I literally demolished it when it arrived. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fabulous. Oh, her writing is just—you are completely there. Yeah, no, it's absolutely brilliant completely yeah, that and again medusa's that. had a bit of a, a you know everyone seems to be fangirling a bit over medusa yeah. in the last sort of year or so she's really her character has completely changed yeah and she's in um jenny saints uh, um, ariadne as yep. well as, as a kind of trope and a theme yeah yeah i love it i'm absolutely here for it so i hope you're enjoying it i am and I'm very, very excited for your event this evening. Thank you. I cannot wait to uh, to listen to you have a chat all about your your novel. And I'm going to obviously get mine signed as well, which of is course. only the only reason I'm actually here. I just bought you bribes <laughs> in the form of cake. It's what I do. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for the cake. And thank you for the chat. It's been lovely. Thank you very much. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app 
or go to betmgm.com and enter code CHAMPION and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. 